Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Well, if you've listened to Tuesday's episode, you know why I asked Neil McCoureg to stick around and record a second episode for this week. I genuinely enjoy talking with fellow fraud fighters who have a shared passion for this industry, not just within our own companies, though we always strive to get that the best and nothing's ever perfect and there's always more things to look at and to improve, but also within the industry and people that are passionate about wanting to make an impact and that they understand that their experiences and the lessons that they learn have even more power and purpose when they share it with their peers in the industry. And if that doesn't describe Neil McCorg, I don't know it does. Neil is currently the head of fraud and risk at eShop World. He talked a bit about that and the unique company structure there. He, for all intents and purposes, is managing the fraud strategy and operations for dozens of very large brands. So not just one, but dozens and ensuring that not only are they keeping their losses low, but they're keeping their acceptance rates high. They are gaining as many customers as possible for their customers. And those of us that have been in this for a long time, you might think that balancing act might become easier over the years, but that's the blessing and the curse of being in this industry, right? The more we put in place, the more the opposition innovates and tries to get around it. So we will continually be busy and we both, we love and hate that. I think it's a love-hate relationship for sure for most of us. Some days we love it. Other days we're like, oh, for the love of God, will you please just go back to doing the low-level stuff you were doing five years ago? That would make my life so much easier. So on today's episode, we tackled a lot of things and I really have to Give credit to Neil because these were things that he really wanted to share with the industry. And I think that they are topics that you will really appreciate that he talked about. So we talked a little bit about how, where the fraud function or where the fraud team sits within an organization and really make a big impact on cross-functional relationships, as well as priorities and budgets and metrics and all of that. I did share a little bit of a sneak peek of the answers to that question from the upcoming benchmarking survey that we have. We have the results from now. Shoshana and I are working on the final report, actually, as we speak, or as I speak. And I shared a little bit about what the respondents, what the 550 respondents said about where their frog organization sat. Because there isn't really a standard, but it does make a pretty big difference. So you'll hear Neil's take on that. Also just talking about leveraging your operational and your technology strategy to really work together. We talked a little bit about that last week or on Tuesday's episode around really balancing your fraud departments if they're on two different continents, knowing that they need to 
support each other, but they can't, one can't do more than the other, but also those levers with technology as well and ensuring that there aren't these huge peaks and valleys on your staff, especially depending on employment rules and all of that on where they're located. And then the biggest thing I think we talked about in this episode that I think you will all appreciate, whether you are on the fraud fighting side for an e-commerce merchant, a marketplace, a fintech, a bank, or you're on the vendor side. And that is, we talked a bit about how to ensure that you select the best technology or that you currently have the best technology. And that is a challenge when so many fraud providers all claim that they can do the same thing. Even though those of us who talk to a lot of people within the industry and hear from people that use every fraud provider you know out there, we know that the experience and the outcome and the accuracy varies greatly. But I think it's a big challenge for especially e-commerce and marketplace companies, though I know some fintechs also have this challenge too, but a lot of times your engineering resources are not only limited, but they're pretty much non-existent. And so it's hard enough to get a full integration into a fraud provider, let alone enough of an integration to do a live POC, because that's very close to a full integration. And as we know from previous episodes here, APIs for fraud vendors are much more intrusive and much more complicated for engineers to plug in to a company's system than APIs for other departments. So it can be a challenge. Well, because a lot of providers know that you're not going to be able to test the product and really take it for a test drive and see how it works in the wild, they can pretty much say whatever they want before you send that contract. And I really wish that I didn't have to be, I didn't have to say that. I wish it wasn't true. I never want to be solely pessimistic, but I am a realist. And especially with several different factors in our industry, including the fact that there are a handful, at least, of companies that have chosen not to innovate anymore, not to really invest in much research and development and just continue to push the same product that they had on the market six, five, four years ago, knowing that, although we all know that fraud has changed significantly, the technology available as well as the sophistication of the cyber criminals on the other side and just their ability to network so much with each other and share small pieces of information that can help them steal a great amount of money. We just know that there's no way that you can fight today's fraud with yesterday's tools. So that really all that comes down from all that is, well, then how do I tell if this one is a good one? And not only did we talk about that a bunch on this episode, I really want you to, I honestly think everyone should take notes. When Neil talks about some of the things that you can do to hold a solution provider, a prospective solution provider accountable without doing a live POC. Obviously, doing a live proof of concept would be the best possible solution, but when it's not available, these are some ideas that honestly I haven't heard other people share before. So I really wanted to highlight those and make sure that you listen. And I think that no matter what type of company you fight fraud for, you'll find them interesting. And solution providers, if you're listening, and I know a lot of you are, I would say that if you want your prospects to trust you, I would suggest that you give them as much information as you can when they ask for it. And I have noticed, for whatever it's worth, that the companies that 
you know, really do work hard to innovate and to provide the best outcome for their customers' customers, which would be their clients' customers. Those ones don't usually have any problem with answering more questions because they understand why you're asking. Um, it's kind of like sociology 101, right? Someone's not going to protest too much if they don't have anything to hide. But I am going to stop telling you what you're about to hear so that you can hear it. I know that you are going to really enjoy this conversation. And at the end of the episode, Neil encourages everyone to connect with him on LinkedIn as well. He also shared that he will be attending the MRC Europe event at the end of May in Barcelona in Spain. And if you are attending, you should definitely try to get in touch with him or probably pick him out of a crowd. I don't know how many tall Irish redheads there will be in Barcelona, but it'd be great for you to get to know him. And obviously, he's just such a great human and very fun to hang out with at the after parties as well. So <laughs> with that, I'm going to let you listen in on the second part of my conversation with Neil McCurrig of eShop World. I had such a good conversation with Neil McCorrig on Tuesday that I am so grateful that he was willing to stay and talk more about so many things. On Tuesday, we talked a little bit about his career journey and just a lot of the lessons he learned, especially traveling, literally working around the world on different continents, managing different teams and, and all of that. And today we're going to dive into more around just overall fraud operations and strategy and technology and how he approaches those things. And I think knowing his path from StubHub to now eShop World definitely helps with that. But Neil, thank you so much for coming back and or actually staying much longer and speaking being willing to come on for a second episode. I'm glad you said that. I was going to pretend like that it was a couple of days later. <laughs> I'd left the room and life had gone on and now I'm back again. But it's good that we're being open with the audience members. But yes, here yes. Like, Reveal behind the curtain. Yes, it's really just later in the evening for you. Yeah. <laughs> Same but, day. Uh, I had a, a great time in the first conversation. I'm looking forward to this one. Me too. And I think I... I always like to ask people, what do you want to talk about? Because I feel if I tell them this is what I want you to talk about, then I'm making assumptions based on everything. Just it's never the same. And so I love that one of the things that you really wanted to talk about was the things that you feel like you can share with others in the industry that might help them along their way. So things that you wish maybe you would have learned from someone else when you were younger in your career or just tips and tricks that you've learned along the way. And one of those things that we were talking about was how we've noticed, and I've noticed this from a high level, but I'd love to hear it from you as far as someone who has been in it, uh, as far as how things can be different for the fraud or trust and safety team, like depending on where they are in the organization. I've definitely noticed some trends of, okay, if fraud reports to finance, then this is what finance is going to, this is what they're going to care about a little bit more. If fraud reports up through technology or product or customer service, they're going to have different aspects. But how did have you seen that be different? Yeah, I mean, we, we'd love to just say it's so simple. Like I had a, a, a longtime manager and he just said, keep 
the only acceptable level of fraud was zero. So just keep fraud low. But there's obviously impacts in, in, in how you do things and the different KPIs that surround ultimately probably your central, which is, which is fraud losses, differs depending on where you're sitting within your organization. And that is super broad. Like the fraud prevention, trust and safety functions in general, there there's tends to be a lot of new nuances company to company. What I am experienced in, you've got reporting ultimately into finance, you've got reporting into the payments organization, trust and safety reporting directly into operations. There's a couple of different ways that it's structured. Ultimately, you can be part of product as well that I've seen a lot too. And then just to boil that down, like it, it doesn't take a lot of thinking to, to figure it out. But if you're reporting into finance, there's going to be an emphasis a little bit more on on those losses. I've been a part of the customer service organization and I'll be I'll say before that I was a little bit guilty of perhaps not being at that time earlier in my career not taking the customer ser- the customer impact of fraud friction serious enough. But if you're part of the customer service organization, there's going to be emphasis on how the friction you're putting in your fraud prevention strategy is impacting good customers. And it's not as simple as just saying false positives right because that's the buzzword that's that tends to be what we look at but it also can be more broad it can be longer manual review timelines can have a a big impact on good customers as well especially if you're dealing with something that needs to be needs to be produced quickly a product that needs to be delivered or, or a perishable good like something within the online sector that needs to get to a customer quickly if you're holding them up for three hours you know that's going to have an impact. And if you're part of customer service, your KPIs are going to be impacted within that as well. And then your how you build relationships too is going to be evident because you're going to be closer with those within your own organization. And that can have benefits and attractions depending on what you're trying to achieve. And product, which is what I'm a part of now, the organization I'm currently ultimately a part of, one benefit of that is when I'm trying to get stuff done, get put, stuff put on the roadmap related to fraud technology, the people that are implementing that from an engineering and a project management standpoint are ultimately within my organization. And so you can build out those closer relations and, and the buy-in and the, the achievement of getting those things that getting those things built in can can just be a little bit more attainable. So that there's a lot of nuance to how how where trust and safety or fraud prevention sits can differ in your strategy and how you move forward on different elements. I think those are all such good points and definitely things that I've noticed. And I think that there are things that need to be under consideration. I know that oftentimes I'll be asked whether companies are newly creating a department for fraud and they kind of want to know where do other people sit, what's normal, where where should it go, or the organization is reevaluating structure. Oftentimes that question will be asked as far as like, where's everyone else? And I think that's a product of, like we were talking about the other day, right? Like it's a product of our our industry still being emerging and still working out on standardization and all of that. I actually was just looking up as you were talking, some of the, these results will be coming up, will be Shoshana and I will be diving into them in the next few weeks as currently she's writing the, actually, I think the ball is probably in my court to review the first draft, if I'm being honest, but of the the first annual fraudology benchmarking survey. And that was a question that we asked. And something that I thought was different, was interesting, was we asked if companies, the department that they 
report up to is the same department from which the majority of their team's budget comes from. And it mm. wasn't always the same either. Yeah. Is that in- is that new for you? Yeah, I mean, from my experience, the budget tends to go up in terms of, I suppose what you can have is situations where a trust and safety problem prevention is technically a part of one organization, but has a dotted line within another. And then that's probably where the budget separation is coming from. Yeah, yeah. And it's actually quite, it's not uncommon for that to be different, right? Yeah, maybe they report up through finance, but the budget comes from technology or from loss prevention or something like that. And that can be a whole other factor too. But as far as just asking what department the fraud team belongs to within the organization, it's all over the map, right? The number one was information security or cybersecurity at 13%, which kind of surprised me a little bit, but these are all different verticals, right? So we've got retail, we have technology, we have online dating, subscription, like all different ones and all over the world. So it's going to be different. But the next one was loss prevention at 12% and then e-commerce or digital commerce operations, payments, finance, trust and safety. I mean, and then customer service was behind that. So that surprised me a little bit just because I think that we're seeing it change a lot. Whereas I think earlier on in my career anyways, it was often customer service or finance. I see it often now go to either IT or product and it does make a difference. It also makes a difference on not, it's not just about, at least from my perspective, and I'd be interested to hear yours too. To me, it's not just about what does your boss care about, but it's also about how they're thinking about solving problems. Are we throwing money at it? Are we looking at technology? Are we throwing people at it? Are we wanting to embrace new technology? Are we wanting to, do we think that the same tool that worked for us five years ago is going to work now? Like it, it impacts a lot of those things too, from what I've seen, but. And you can have, it also depends, like we're talking about how ultimately the fraud organization reports up, but how does the fraud organization, organization structure itself internally oh my gosh yeah like for me i'm someone who has developed both from a strategic standpoint and from a leadership standpoint but what you'll get within some organizations is that they've separated those two things Hmm. so on the strategy and technology side someone you could have an individual or an organization responsible on that and then operations is separate and i've seen a bit of development on that side of things as well and those two two elements brand splitting out and then maybe you'll have fraud technology and strategy as an example under product and then you'll have an operational organization maybe reporting into customer service and that's going to have an impact too so it's not just about above it's also internally how it's been structured that's a really good point because especially as product is such a good example of that a lot of times you'll have someone dedicated to the fraud team and product but their who they report to isn't in fraud right it's externally within product and so they're being measured in different ways but I think that there's benefits and disadvantages to each. And I think these are all things that will probably get worked out over time. But I don't know if there will ever be just one way of doing anything when it comes to structures of teams and operations and all of that, because not only is every company different and culture and how they view fraud, how important it is to them, whether they view it as 
just protecting the company or as a function of being able to also increase profits in the right way, if it's holistic versus just tactical, as well as so many, I don't know, as well as different verticals, right? Traditional retailers are, like you said earlier, depending on the product, right? Like how expedient does the item need to come out or be shipped out or be provided as well as everything else? It definitely is. I don't know if there's ever going to be just one way to do things, right? I think that there's There are ways to learn from and definitely adapt and ask your peers or learn from a podcast or from a conference of, oh, I hadn't thought about that structure, but it does make a big difference in how you, how Uh, things get done, right? And how decisions get made. I do think it's funny as well. Like we're talking about organizational structure, but what you just said there really extends way past that. When you're talking about there isn't just one way to do things. it's true. And and (laughs) whether one way to do things, you can also just develop not to go ahead but like talking about then op- operational manual review versus technical technology yes. and how, what your strategy is there's definitively and probably shouldn't and probably will never be just a perfect way one way of mm-hmm. doing things it compl- it's depending on so many different elements and i think the worst thing a fraud manager or fraud expert or fraud leader can do is develop a tendency to think that there is one way of doing things like mm. it's right this is the manual review automation blend that's how you do things that works that applies to everything every geo every product every company where in my view that's an oversimplification and certainly the way the blend is mixed up it needs to be adjusted based on a lot of different attributes so being open to different strategies and adjusting depending on geography, market, product, the operational center that we talked about in the last episode, where your operations are physically, all those different elements combined together to develop your strategy doesn't come first independent of all those elements. That is a very good point. I was thinking that you were going to say the worst thing that a fraud leader or manager could do is thinking that the way things were done before is the way they should always be done. But I think that those go hand in hand, right? Yeah, no, it's uh, ultimate. Yeah, yeah. And I, I often, when it, whether I was in the role in the trade association or just now, a lot of people will reach out to me to just be like, what are other people seeing? Or what are, what, how do other people do this? And I think a lot of times when they're asking that question, I just had another realization from what you were saying, but I'll shut out in a minute. A lot of times when they're asking that question, it's assuming that I'm going to have one right answer. And it's the same with almost everything, right? What is the average company's approval rate? What technology you're working with? There's so many different questions. It's kind of like when I'm training anyone, just even whether it's at manual review or not, just talking about fraud, whether I'm working with a new merchant and I'm helping retrain their manual review team or, you know, bringing someone in or whatever, I often, if you're not familiar with fraud, it's always this way, except for when it's not. There's just never way. It's kind of, and that's kind of the way you have to think of it, right? And those people who approach fraud as if this, then that, oh my gosh, have I seen some massive like messes because of that, both in customers that have been pissed off and fraud that's gotten through and companies being like, what the heck is this thing? Just huge messes. And so we always have to know that there's never one right way. It's context. It's always about context, whether you're looking at a transaction or you're looking at 
the organizational structure and the balance of operations and technology and the overall strategy for a fraud team. Yeah, the ability to adapt to fight complacency is a massive element. <laughs> and I think you touched on it in the last episode. <laughs> Fraudsters are going to develop and move on in what they're doing. And if you as a fraud leader, as a fraud expert, don't move on and look for the next in enhancement like it's almost if you're really happy with your fraud losses and you're really just perfect situation you're really happy with your fraud losses and you're really happy with your approval rates with your conversion as well all power to you you're flying so you just don't do anything <laughs> you don't change anything right and you just assume everything's going to continue in that fashion it would 100% will not one day there'll be a fraud attack and your losses will go out the window and the only way to avoid that is keep looking to improve. Mm. Keep looking at the new technology. How do you improve your manual man, man review? How do you decrease your false positives coming from manual review? How do you integrate new identity verification tools within your manual review processes? Keep looking to move forward almost to stay in the same spot because the fraud itself is changing and evolving and moving forward. So complacency is something that you just within fraud more than anything, you just don't have the ability to accept it. I am literally writing down, keep looking, keep looking to move forward almost to stay in the same spot because there couldn't be more true. And I think that just on a like more, it's probably on a more personal note, but one of the biggest pet peeves I have when working with different groups of merchants, inevitably there will be one person that is just, oh, fraud is bad. What are you going to do? And I just get so annoyed by it because oftentimes they'll also, if another merchant is saying, oh, we did this and this, and or they'll just say, oh, we don't have that anymore. We're building something internally or we're, we got budget to add this or that, that person will say, oh, that must be nice. And I'm like, do you not understand that it was not like overnight? It was continually. It's not like overnight their bosses just were like, oh, here's a blank check. No, they did the work. They looked at everything. They understood it in detail. They looked to see what's the best way. They really did their homework to make sure because just because every fraud solution sounds the same does not mean that they are the same at all. You and I know very, very well. So they did their homework and knowing those differences because those margins are what makes a big difference in your rates. And that's what makes a big, not just in your rates, but in your customer experience and in the way that your company views your team and all of it. The art of the ROI, essentially. Yeah. And going backwards a little bit. Every Look, there's a, as you just said, there's a lot of terrific fraud vendors out there. And there's a lot of terrific fraud vendors that are looking to advance the technology that, that is needed to improve oh, yeah. in the space. But ultimately, every one of them is going to tell you that they can solve your problems 100%. I guarantee that. And it's not that they they don't think that they can. They're not exact, They're not misleading you. But yeah. at a certain point... You have your responsibilities to understand how do you translate the promise of that technology into mm. its into its into the actual reality of its value for your situation, for your business, for your market, and how do you go about that? The trickiest thing is how do you evaluate your current technology with the technology out there, and ultimately how do you go about that process, and how do you? essentially prioritize that against other things because you're going that's the internal battle that you're going to come across is mm -hmm. not only do you have to understand where your technology is versus other potential vendors but then that needs to translate into value against other initiatives that your company 
could invest in right and then going about getting six fraud vendors down to one or two and then essentially do, how do you get to a place where you're going maybe a, you're doing a live poc but a live poc is 75 percent, 80 percent of a full integration so mm-hmm. even getting to that point how do you get there so that's why i say like um, the umbrella term like the art of the roi is essentially that's the end point but then how do you establish it and there's a couple of different ways ultimately what you're going to want to do is first of all understand the different technology elements get opinions on the vendors that are out there from others in the organization from a perspective of the experiences they have and also Mm. the reference of you're talking to the salesman at the start but then what's the company like after you sign the contract that's ultimately something that you're going to want to know and then you're going to want to you're going to want to get a high level understanding of the performance capabilities always drive numbers right? Look beyond the technology after you get an understanding and then push and push to get numbers and apply them back to your own business and to establish an ROI. And then if you can ultimately invest in a live POC, that's the natural step. Prove it out in reality before making the big change, which is switching over your fraud vendor. Or maybe you are, some companies have an internal fraud model, which is great as well. And that makes sense for their circumstance. In that, some parts of analysis is critical. Yeah, there are so many things I want to unpack there. And I love that you took us so far. I'm going to bring us back a tiny bit. One of the things that you said I really just wanted to emphasize on was, you know, it's not always about the technology can only bring you so far, right? It's not that it's not always the case that solution providers, especially in the sales side, are over-promising. Now, I would say sometimes they don't always understand nuances. It's something that with the few solution providers that I do work with in my consultancy, I often help them to understand some of the nuances, right? Just because you were your company was able to save this company this much or this or that doesn't mean that you can copy paste that even for their direct competitor, because there's going to be different things at play or saying, honestly, it's not always just about those rates, right? Sometimes this is more important or that's more important or really listening, but also anticipating the needs. I think that part of it is, I guess my point to all that is just to highlight the fact that the success that I see of merchants who say, wow, I really like my current fraud provider. Yes, there are some themes and I hear some of the same companies over and over again. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, 
need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. But there are other times where I will hear, wow, I really like my current frog provider. And I'm like, that's interesting because a lot of people don't. And when I, uh, I don't say that out loud, but I'll say, what do you like about them? Or what are you doing? It often is the person who really likes their frog provider is the person who has done everything they could to optimize that technology and hold their vendor accountable. Sometimes that means that they are like the third most frequently person that that calls their account manager in their account manager's cell phone just behind their mom and their wife. That's a true story for a couple of merchants I know. Like they're holding them accountable and they're holding their feet to the fire. Other times it means, oh, okay, maybe we can add another level of enhancement or maybe we can add another. It's going to be way too costly to take out this provider because they're like an octopus in every part of our organization and within our system. So maybe instead I will add additional layers or maybe we need to press our provider to create a solution because now that we've got payment fraud underway, now we have refund fraud, right? Or refund claims fraud, or now we have promo, not just abuse, but the fraud on that or loyalty fraud, different aspects, right? Just constantly being engaged. And sometimes I see merchants taking, making the mistake of, oh, we put in a solution that says that they're a full encompassing solution and they make the decision. So we don't really need anyone to manage them, or we don't need anyone to be looking at this other than just once a month, we look at what the results are. And it's, oh, but you're losing so much opportunity, not just right now, but for the future too. Yeah, I think as well, more than anything, there's, as I know that you've done a couple of recent podcasts on it, but the refund fraud problem is something that's growing. You might be looking at at your core fraud solution to provide the support for transactional fraud, but it also needs to provide the capabilities to fight re- policy issues and refund fraud issues and any other elements that, that that need friction from a risk perspective related to payments. They need to have the capabilities all around in order to provide the mechanisms that you need to manage risk within your space. And that's becoming more and more crucial over the last two years than it was before that and so understanding all the different elements and you could be you're you're most likely if you've got a manual review element within what you're doing you're managing that directly within your fraud solution provider so Mm. what's the case management what's the case management solution like there's also going to be you might be utilizing it for chargeback disputes directly how does that translate into that kind of win revenue stream for your organization so having going in you need to understand every kpi that translates into value for your organization. And then that's who you start out the evaluation process. Don't, you should be leading, you should mm. be leading the fraud vendor, the fraud vendor should be leading you. That's very good advice. 
Would you say that when you've done these types of analysis, and I know you know you have fairly recently in the, in this role as well as in other roles, are you spending time to really understand your own internal issues and problems and what your I think because when you said you meet with other departments internally, I wasn't sure or meet with other departments to learn about the vendor. I wasn't sure if you meant internally in your current company to understand what other departments you currently feel about the current provider? And is it a situation to really understand what are our needs? What are the actual true root causes of these issues? And is this something that we can get our current provider to do? Because as a lot of solution providers don't always understand, merchants don't want to to switch providers unless they really feel like they have to. So some, I often, at least in my approach, I first recommend that the merchant really understand what are your current providers? What are they doing well? What are their shortcomings? What is on those shortcomings? What is the true problem? And what type of solution would help you fix that? Because otherwise you're in a situation of, oh, they said that would work for this. And if you don't totally know what your problem is, right? Like refund fraud is such a good example. There's some percentage of it that is always going to be refund abuse by good customers, but there's a very large percentage and it's the percentage that's scaling and growing that is true hostile fraud and you cannot detect them the same way. And so if you don't know what the true root causes and what that breakdown is for you, you might assume that a solution provider talking about refund abuse is talking about your problem. So yeah. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think I just asked you like four questions. Sorry. <laughs> I'm like trying to rewind back to the first questions. Like, so, but your first, like your most recent point, I think you have an app. Like companies don't want to replace their core solution. And fraud managers, fraud leaders don't want to. And ultimately, they don't want to because it's a huge amount of effort and it's a mm-hmm. huge amount of cost. And it normally comes at the expense of three other things that, that your company could have enhanced in order to do. So to- You have to use your internal capital to be able to get that because everyone's saying, you have a fraud vendor already, so what's the difference? Isn't that the same? That's usually always the case. Yeah. Exactly. So you have, and it's not only just like we're talking about, when I say like core fraud solution, normally like like the mechanism for scoring transactions yeah. and real capabilities, case management. But then you've got other fraud vendors that are providing an intelligence on data points like email, IP, address verification, Device, all of that right. kind of stuff as well. So then you have to understand, yeah, you want to enhance what you're doing, but even your starting point is at your core solution. You spend money and time on that. Then you've got your data integration, verification solution. That can't be done. So straight away, you're, you're prioritizing within yourself before you even look at the wider picture within the company. I think ultimately, you have a huge responsibility to max out your understanding of your current fraud provider. Because more likely than not, they have enhancements that you could first look to do before you completely look to swap out and those enhancements are probably easier to do but what is the value of them and so your very first thing is you max out your understanding of your own solution and to go just to go back i think what i was trying to say earlier was you should look for references uh, from in others in the industry that you have relationships mm. with, not internal to your own company. Gotcha. You, okay. should, you should be the expert in, internally. But we all know people within the industry and experiences they have had with different vendors. Lean on those experiences to at least get a reference point like you like you would with anything else. Yeah. And I think that one of the bigger challenges for a lot of companies in the last few years has been that they added a fraud solution provider 
During the last kind of, I don't want to say revolution, but there's been a couple of times over my career that I've seen fraud just rapidly change and need a new approach. And there are some companies that have added that during the last iteration, right? The 2012, 2012, 2013, 14, 15. And unfortunately, some of the solutions that were really good and at the top of their game then for the fraud that was happening then have not evolved and changed to keep up with the current fraud now, and especially in the last two to three years. I think that's the biggest alarm bells with a vendor. Mm. If you're having, because one thing that you can, that's easy to hold them to account, what are you investing in? What are you, yeah, what are you improving on? What's your roadmap like? And demonstrate it to me, show me, let's talk about it. You're gonna do X. What can you, when can you commit to delivering on that? Mm-hmm. And if you have a fraud vendor, and I have been in this position, if you have a fraud vendor and it's ghost town on improvements, mm-hmm. forget about it. Off, figure out how to replace them as soon as possible. And that does happen, unfortunately, in the space. We've seen it happen where the new they fraud vendor. It, or not. It, a, lot of the, a lot of the times they did get acquired. That's mm-hmm. for whatever reason. They get acquired and the investment stops. So if you're in that Oh, position- I could deep dive. I've, I think I've ranted about this before on previous episodes, so I won't get into it. But there are, yeah, what also happens often is once the acquisition happens, that was a finish line for the people who built that product and who had sweat equity in it and who cared about it and who wanted to keep improving it. And oftentimes they get to leave and start all over or get to go somewhere else. And the people that are left sustaining it don't have as much incentive to improve it or the company who purchased it really purchased it either because it was a competitor and they didn't want them to keep succeeding or because they wanted a piece of their technology and that's all they're going to use it for. And that is a frustration of mine, but I also understand that's capitalism and the good side of capitalism is getting new innovation. It's just that sometimes that innovation means in a new company, but that's not always the case. But I think you are spot freaking on in the fact that knowing where your provider, where your your current vendor is investing, oftentimes people will go to LinkedIn and see the on the company page, you can see the percentage of titles or departments that a company has. And if they see that 60% are in sales and marketing and they only have maybe 10% in engineering, they're like, okay, yeah, see, you're not trying to do improvements. That's not always the case, but sometimes. But then also to your point, like if they, if you can't crack the whip and say, if you're trying to get a hold of them and it's ghost town because they just don't care or you're, you've asked for the same thing many times and haven't heard a response or haven't seen like it matters to them, then those are good signs that perhaps it's good to look around. And maybe if you look around, you'll see, oh, actually I don't have it so bad. Okay. But most of the time it's, oh, (laughs) there's a big, gap between a company that stopped investing and stopped growing even three or four years ago and those that still are. I think like one of the things you said there is referencing me, you know, that I've done evaluations recently or that I've done evaluations previously. I think yeah. if you talk to any fraud vendor, i sorry, any fraud manager or fraud expert who has a responsibility for vendor management or the technology within their organization and you ask them, have you done any evaluations or done any deep dives into new technology recently and they say no that's a problem the answer to that question should always be yes you have a constant (laughs) responsibility to understand what is the new technology where are vendors at now 
who's performing, how are things evolving? That's a big part of your responsibility as well to keep your ear to the ground and reach out and attend conferences and review technology. And cons- it's a constant, it's constant evolution. It doesn't stop. You, if you stop, the technology's moved on two years and you haven't done anything about it. Into your, yeah, into what we've said multiple times, but just in a little bit different way. The fraud side, the side committing fraud, whether we're, uh, we've had an internal battle and debate in the industry lately. Are we calling them bad actors or does that make us think of Steven Seagal? Are we calling them fraudsters or is that too folksy? Are we calling it whatever? But that side, they're, they don't have to worry about budget. They don't have to worry about sprints and timelines and bandwidth of engineering, et cetera, et cetera. You know what? They're continually evolving. And so it is up to, it should be a partnership between, or really an initiative set by the fraud leader to learn about that. Now, that doesn't always mean, unfortunately, for those solution providers listening, sometimes a fraud leader will look at something and be like, wow, this is really cool. That doesn't mean that they can implement it tomorrow. It may not even mean that they can implement it at all, but like they do need to know about it. And I think there's some opportunities in doing things differently there as far as how things are learned about, which I've been kind of working on doing some experiments lately privately and I'll share more about that down the line but as far as are there better ways for the industry to learn about technology without it then becoming oh I'm on someone's radar and they're going to continue to call me every day because that doesn't always be the case but you're absolutely right it's a responsibility and to hold your current provider accountable but when they don't that doesn't seem to be a priority when you don't seem to be a priority or your problem because chances are you're not the only person that uses them as an asking them for the same things over and over again, I can almost guarantee you of that, then it's time to look around. And so following those steps, right? So you're looking at your current solution and the performance. You're kind of looking at the gaps. You're looking at, okay, I need to know what the opportunity is. So I'm going to go look out at new providers and I'm going to ask them lots of questions and hold them accountable. I'm going to talk to my peers in the industry and see, hey, is what they're saying lining up with your experience now that you are a customer, those types of things. And then you talked about doing a live POC if you can, but at least getting numbers. And I think that both of those things are so tricky for so many people in fraud because engineering resources are just so lax and that it's so hard, not lax, they're so restrained and hard to get. From your perspective, how what are some things that you can do there? If either whether you can get a live POC or you can't, or you can try to convince your, what are some tips to try to either get the best possible numbers to have an accurate ROI rather than just a, oh, we can reduce your chargebacks by 98% without ever looking at anything. These crazy numbers or, or are there ways to internally push for a live POC that will be advantageous? Because I know that those who have done a live POC usually are like, oh, this is a no brainer. I go from I go from having to believe whatever they say to just seeing the numbers and knowing exactly, comparing them to where I'm at and knowing exactly what the right choice is. Yeah. And I think ultimately it's steps really, because you're going to get, if you get to a live POC, you're going to have the richest vein of data and then you're going to be able to make a, a very well informed decision. But even a live POC, you can have two different types. You can have a live POC that's in listening mode where mm. if you're looking at it from a transactional fraud perspective only, which is probably the core of what you're doing, even if there's supplementary elements attached to it <laughs> you do a listening mode poc you're going to have some gaps because there's going to be tr- depending on that you're talking in get too deep but how you handle things from a pre-auth or a post-off mm. 
perspective has a big element here but say you're doing pre-auth and you're doing a listening mode poc you're going to not be able to see circumstances where your current fraud preventer current fraud vendor rejected a transaction and the challenger accepted it Uh, was that really fraud you're going to have to get a manual review element then to figure that out so a live poc with a decision mode element whether it be a b testing or a certain amount of time like a two-month area where you can then track transaction charge back evolution over time is the most ideal circumstance if you can make that happen but how do you get there is the harder thing so ultimately i think a, a, a direction that a lot of companies go down is the rf rfp route where mm-hmm. you come up with a questionnaire have each vendor fill it out and that questionnaire at a very high level to simplify it is based on two two split elements as capabilities and kpis and then you're ultimately you're doing a blind results on what the kpis on what the kpis are but your responsibility is to structure that unique to you as a business and make it as incrementally detailed as possible so you're splitting out your chargeback your approvals false positives and then going geo by geo and looking for real data on those particular performance kpis split by geo split by vertical and if there's gaps from where they are in terms of what that vendor is doing currently in the market if they don't have performance in india with a certain card at a certain level of volume that in itself is an attribute of a result and evaluate for how you move forward so matching up experience and capabilities direct to you and your business and your exposure is a part of it too i'm so glad you said all of that i think that these are the types of things and this is a another thing on carissa's wish list that she hopes that she can help create in the industry before she's gone but these tips and tricks around not even tips and tricks but just best practices around like what you've learned and i know some of it has been from past and current leadership Others have been from trial and error and learning yourself and going through this process a few times. But those are the types of things that not every per- not every fraud leader knows, right? And I do think that asking for those KPIs in the most specific ways you can in the same mark in the right markets and the right payment method that you need them for is the best that you can do without a POC. And it is certainly better than a lot of RFIs and RFPs I've seen lately that are a lot more anecdotal than analytic. Yeah, Yeah, they're generic and they're anecdotal where it's just like, how would you do this? How would you do that? Would you do this? You're just, you're allowing anyone to just fill in the blanks. I've even heard from some solution providers who get frustrated by some of the generic RFPs and they're like, I know what my competitors are putting down on this and I know it's a bunch of bullshit, but I don't want to lie. But at the same time, if, if this is all the merchants asking us, or if this is all the fintech is asking us, we're not going to be able to show our value. They're not asking us for enough detail or And it does sometimes boggle my mind that in an industry that should be very data focused and data driven, and that should be what makes our decisions, because we often, we collectively don't get prioritization with engineering and what that takes for a POC. And you're absolutely right. A lot of times it's very close to fully already being integrated with them. Essentially, it's 
basically close to an integration in some cases for those core fraud providers because they do need so many data points. Not in all cases. And I know that there are changes happening and different technology happening to try to make that less of a lift on the end user, but it's still quite a bit. It can be, you you can essentially, because that is so hard to get, you can essentially just be basing it on someone's word. And what you really need to be doing to your, all of your points is looking at it as close as you possibly can to see what's the value here. What's the difference? What's the uplift? How can I explain this to my business? Maybe it's not just about fraud. Maybe they also have ways to increase bank authorization rates, or maybe they have other ways of doing things that help to provide more information that will lead to more approvals, like those type of things. It's not just about lowering your chargebacks. One thing that you could, I know from experience, the fraud vendors hate to do this, but one thing that you can push your prospective fraud vendor to do is an offline POC, which Ah. is just a data ingestion decisioning. And what's great about that is it's historic data. It's already fully timed out. So you know that the fraud levels within the data that you're providing. Right, and the end result. The end result of what it's going to be. And ultimately, push comes to show if you're going to have to put pressure on the fraud vendor to do it, depending <laughs> on their willingness. Mm-hmm. But it's it won't tell you the whole truth, but it will give you an indication of your their capabilities. And it can be something that you can do in tandem with the RFP process to give you some indication of performance at a cheaper, a cheaper, much cheaper way of doing it than a full PLC. It's less lift internally, right? So you're not. There's you're, no engineering. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's it. Yeah. There's no engineering on your part. And I think it depends on the provider. There are a couple of them I know that actually like to do that, but most of them don't. And to your point, sometimes it's because their tool works better with live data and more information, or sometimes it works better with the interaction and the way that the user did certain things, but it gives you more information and more data than just asking them to say their average this or that. And I think at the end of the day, it's all about the details, which you have highlighted well, but by market, by payment method, by your average order value, those are going to have different issuing banks are going to handle them differently. Therefore, you're going to have different results than other companies. So having something that's specific to you also allows you to be able to sell that internally. And I would say to the solution providers that are like, "Ah, Neil, why'd you bring that up? With that data, it's like, you know what, that's that assuming that your product does a good job, that's a better way to have a new client and be able to get them to sell it faster internally within this quarter rather than next one. Because to your point, and it's been said before on the podcast, and I just, I can't say it enough because of the way that fraud is prioritized or not prioritized internally within a tech company, we're always having to go up against all kinds of things within the company for ROI, right? It's not, okay, we always are going to dedicate this many hours of engineering to the fraud team. It's nope. We have these three product projects that want to be done. How much can we save or how much can we make? So the higher that is, the more likely it is to get implemented soon. Yeah. And what, overall, where was your company's focus? Is it on mm. growth or is it on profitability? Because that's going to mm. have a big impact 
and the amount of emphasis that there is in the fraud function because (laughs) what you're doing is protecting the bottom line but if your company is super super focused on rapid growth they're not too concerned with the losses and all of that's going to have an impact on your capability and your ability to to invest in fraud technology and fraud operations can you say more about that as far as because i think i've seen this but i don't know if it's been explained in a way that everyone understands but especially for technology companies there are there's a cyclical evolution right and i often will say it's important to align your fraud priorities or your trust and safety priorities with the business's goals and sometimes the business is in a growth mode where they're really focused most on new accounts and new activity and new members and other times they're focused on profitability where it's more about the quality over quantity because it's more about how much money can we keep and save. And I know you've been in both situations. So I'd love for you to just share a little bit about, you know, what matters as a fraud leader in those two situations, what you focus on most to be as much value. Yeah, absolutely. I think ultimately, if you're in a high growth, if you're in a high growth situation, the amount of friction that you're putting on the good transactions is going to be under the microscope. So mm. you're understanding the key metrics around that are obviously very important. It's you know your false positives as well as your losses and your approval rate. But that's going to that's going to have a massive effect on the friction that you can apply to transactions because we all know there's going to be a certain amount of false positives involved. Anybody tells you that they've got fraud and no false positives, they're <laughs> probably lying to you. Um, or to themselves. <laughs> Parts of themselves, yeah, yeah, deep, yeah. So I think when you're in that when you're in that growth situation, you're, if you have you're working with your core solution, maybe you've got a score, a model rules blend with a score attached to it, and you know that you can increase or decrease that score, and you can translate what the loss reduction will be, but also then what the impact on the reduction of growth will be. And ultimately, I think you have your responsibility is the same is that you're just telling that message you're saying we can pull the lever and get that we can impact the growth more positively from what we're doing but this is what the losses are going to be and then it's the reverse situation is you can have the same technology in place but you can reduce the scoring impact to bring losses down where you're going to be taking x amount of good customers away as well and i think Really, as a fraud leader, you need to be fluid in both situations and be able to clearly communicate and translate what is going to happen based on what the asks are and know what levers to pull to be able to make that effect. And be willing to pull those levers, even though you don't want to. (laughs) Yeah, I think in the high growth situation, we're probably more uncomfortable. If we're being asked to reduce, if we're being asked to make a decision or make a move that's going to increase fraud losses organically, that rubs us the wrong way. But as being partners in the in, in our company and our business, we need to be able to facilitate that and find comfort in it and not just be about one thing, invest in the company as a whole, because that's ultimately a responsibility is the success of the company. And having that mindset and that approach to relationships in internally and with leadership, as well as having your business's best interests and goals in mind when you're making decisions that are in the best interest of the company, not only your department. That's 
those, those are the leaders who I always suggest that people learn from. Those are the leaders that often have learned how to be very valuable within their company and that their company respects them. It doesn't happen overnight, but aligning it with the business and knowing, okay, this might mean me taking on more fraud loss as long as I advise them of that and said, hey, this is what the outcome it's might be. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, exactly. These are the risks. Your yes. responsibility is to outline what they are. Yeah, but not but advising them, not telling them this is what's going to happen. Just, hey, these are the risks of that decision, but we can totally do it and we're happy to. Or, hey, I would love to align more with our goals for growth, but right now our current provider, we have to put too much friction in order to sustain our losses under a certain threshold. So if that's the route we need to go or we want to go, I may need to go out and upgrade to someone new and and start that conversation so that they know, yeah, I can totally do this. It's just I need something new because inevitably the newer technology is more focused on those margins and those thin lines and the gray area where you could cancel all, you could accept all, or you can try to be more surgical with things. And that's where the opportunities are in, in being more surgical and more precise. Yeah, absolutely. We had no doubt that we could fill up two episodes very quickly. And oh. I'm so grateful for your time in these conversations. I just oh, makes today is just one of those days that I'm like, I love this part of my job because I feel like I, I get smarter when talking with so many of you and I get even I love even more getting to expose the industry to so many of the smart people that I get to know often behind the scenes. So I'm so grateful that you were willing to do this and made the time and all of that. But I'd love for just to open up the last couple of minutes to anything else you'd like to add as far as, and I know that's a blank slate, but if there's anything else that you'd like to share with the industry or tips to people at different parts of their career the floor is yours, Neil. Yeah, <laughs> no pressure. So much pressure. I was like, yeah, <laughs> I, I think ultimately remaining fluid is such an important part of managing fraud. Remaining fluid, remaining agile, willing to learn, willing to adjust, willing to change your strategy, learning to adapt to new circumstances and move on from things that have made you successful in the past is such an important part because ultimately looking at refund fraud as an example it's such a big thing in the industry over the last two years and yet so much of what's made fraud leaders successful over the last the period before that is is managing transactional fraud mm. attached to payments so yeah. those who are going to thrive over the next couple of years are going to be the ones that broaden their capabilities and their understanding of risk parameters across the board and remain fluid in how you manage operations versus technology when you when your company grows and expands into new markets when you move and move to a, a different company a different situation the circumstances you had in the past may not fit here especially like me if you're moving countries all the time that has a big factor as well and more than anything i think from a leadership perspective it's incredibly important to remain fluid to those that you're managing let them affect how you lead as well as more so than the other way around and i think we get lost in we're experts in what we do we're expert fraud prevention in fraud prevention but without being 
good leaders, we, we wouldn't have the capability to be successful at what we do. Very well said. And I know a few people who have reported to you in the past and know that they would co-sign on the fact that you really were a great, were and are a great leader and individual to each employee and want the best for them. And I know as an employee who used to have leadership and as a somebody who used to be a leader, that nothing drives an employee more than knowing that their leadership has their best interests in mind and wants them to succeed. And that creates such a good partnership and a team mentality because you're right, we can't do everything all on our own and we need different layers. So many good points. I am not going to dive into them because they were your final thoughts and we're just going to stop there. But I (laughs) will extend the invitation to you to always come back if you want to. And I will also, as with all with all guests, I will put a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. And I encourage people to reach out to you. I always say no solicitations, please, on the vendor side. But as far as on you know, passionate fraud fighters, whether they're merchants or fintechs or whatever, I know that's one of your favorite things about being in fraud too. Yeah. And just to say, I'm speaking at MRC Barcelona as well for anybody that's listening, that's going to be there. I'm speaking on managing fraud in a challenging market Mm -hmm. on day two of the MRC in Barcelona. So if you're going to be there, check it out. I'm glad you said that. I am jealous. I miss getting to go to those European events. They are unique and I just learned so much when I got to go and I hope that I get to see you again in person at some point if not sooner next year but this is just so much fun I'm grateful for modern technology and grateful to your wife who gave up a couple hours of your evening for you to chat with me and just grateful to you taking me away for a couple of hours (laughs) (laughs) that's when we know you've been married for more than a year I'm kidding I, yeah, no, so I am just grateful for everything and we will talk with you soon, I hope. But thank you again. You gave a lot of nuggets for you know a lot of people to think about. And actually, I will be <laughs> thinking about several of them the rest of the day too. So thanks again so much for sharing your perspective. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm delighted I was able to do this. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.